0: Well, today we're beginning a new series of sermons <clears throat> on the life of the prophet Elijah. I called it good trouble. Maybe too cute? I'm not sure. We'll see. But he was called a troubler of Israel. <clears throat> of course, it usually were the people that called him that that really troubled Israel. Now, as we look at uh, this prophet's life, it, It is admittedly strange. I think we just have to acknowledge that a lot of these stories must strike us as very strange. A lot of weird stuff happens here. And yet, I hope to show that as we get into these stories, we will see just how relevant they are to our lives today. Elijah ministered in a pluralistic and idolatrous culture much like today. His message was simple. Only the Lord is God, excuse me, and only the Lord deserves our full obedience and devotion because He rules over all. And I think that's the message we need today as well. The story of Elijah helps us learn how to live as followers of Christ among the various pressure points Of our culture today. So let's just jump right into it, the first great story from this life, and let's consider our passage under three headings. First, let's look at what God did through Elijah. What did God do through him, through the prophet? Secondly, let's consider what God did for Elijah or in Elijah. And then finally, Let's consider what God can do for us and in us through Christ. What did God do through Elijah? Well, this, this starts abruptly. He just, Elijah just kind of shows up, which is not unusual for Elijah, as we will see in the rest of the, his life. He just kind of shows up. He just kind of bursts on the scene in verse 1 and announces to the king that a drought is coming, and this drought we will learn later, will, would last three and a half years. Now, it's a, it's, a, it's a major crisis for Israel. It's hard for us to understand what such an announcement meant to the king and to the people as they heard about it. Israel was an agrarian society. Now, you don't have trucks, right, going hundreds of miles, bringing food. Everybody depends on what they can grow, what they can produce. And so, no rain simply meant no harvest, which meant no food, which meant no life. I mean, it really was that simple. People lived in fear of of drought, because if there wasn't enough moisture, you couldn't grow stuff you needed to survive. A drought was like a plague or like a war. It was was similar in, in its impact on the people. And so people lived in this fear that something like that might happen. There was this anxiety. And so here comes Elijah, and he says there will be no rain, no dew, no moisture. It means you can't grow anything, means you won't have anything to eat, means people are going to die. A drought was devastating economically, of course, but it was also devastating politically. He's speaking to the king, he's speaking to Ahab. Now, of course, everybody looks to the king to ensure the prosperity of the land. If the gods, in this case, in a polytheistic society, if the gods are not sending rain, something is wrong, and it may be that something is wrong with the king. Maybe the king has sinned. Maybe something is wrong on that level, and so he is not doing what he is supposed to. And So there's tremendous political pressure on the king. So this is bad news all around. The question is, why is God, through his prophet, sending a drought on his people? We need to look at two passages to understand what's going on here. First, Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 and following. This gives us the background of why God would do something like this. Now, this is going back several generations after Israel left Egypt. God rescued them from Egypt, and they're about to enter the land of promise into Canaan, And Moses addresses Israel in Deuteronomy 11 as they're about to go into the land where God promises prosperity. This is what Moses says on behalf of God. He says, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season. The early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly of the good land that the Lord has given you. The Lord is warning his people that the reason you have this land is so you can enjoy this land with me. I am the giver of these blessings. I am in a covenant relationship with you. I rescued you out of slavery, and now I'm giving you this good land. So go and live in it and enjoy it and live prosperously, but remember where all this comes from. And so if you deceive yourself into thinking that somehow God is not responsible for this, and you start following other gods, and you start breaking my commandments, the Lord says, I will remind you of this relationship. And I will remind you by shutting up heavens. And so there will be no rain, there will be no food, and you will die in this land without me. The Lord's point is that life is with Him. Now we make all kinds of rationalizations, we make all kinds of reasons of why we have something or why we don't have something. But ultimately, everything good comes from the Lord. And every once in a while, he reminds us of that, as he does to his people Israel here. The Lord can withdraw the blessings that we have to remind us that he is the source of those blessings. Now, this is one of the covenant curses that was promised to Israel, the absence of rain. And so Elijah, in effect, is pronouncing judgment on Israel. For their disobedience and idolatry. Okay, the second passage, 1 Kings 16, just the previous chapter, if you are in 1 Kings 17, just go back one chapter. And it describes the disobedience and idolatry that caused this kind of harsh pronouncement. 1 Kings 16:29. This tells us what kind of king Ahab was. Remember, Elijah is speaking to Ahab, king of Israel. Now at this point, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom ruled from Jerusalem, was called Judah. And the northern kingdom ruled from Samaria that retained the name Israel. Elijah is a prophet in Israel in the northern kingdom during the reign of Ahab. And this is what we are told. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, southern kingdom, Ahab, the son of Omri, northern kingdom, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. There were some bad kings before him, but he was the worst. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat who was the notorious, the the one who split the kingdom. That's the one that started idolatry in Israel. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab is a particularly evil king. He married Jezebel, a Sidonian princess. So this is still remnants of pagan nations that are still in the land. And so so he marries Jezebel. So it's a political alliance, but it's also a religious alliance. And so he brings the worship of Baal into Samaria, the capital of Israel. He builds a temple. He puts an altar in Samaria for Baal. He builds Asherah, which are idol- idols of, of another pagan deity. What Ahim is doing is nothing less than re-canonizing Israel. He's actually going exactly the opposite direction from where the Lord has brought them so far. He's bringing the idols that, were, that the, land, the land was cleansed from He's now bringing those pagan practices that were judged by God when Israel came into the land. And so you have Ahab and Jezebel ruling Israel. Now, I know that we have several expectant mothers in the congregation. Ahab and Jezebel are not great names for your children, okay? (laughs) Yes, they're biblical names, but they're not the best biblical names, okay? You can do much better than Ahab or Jezebel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel bring the worship of Baal into Israel. Baal was a Canaanite fertility god, and he was thought to be in control of rain, interestingly enough. So Elijah shows up, addresses Ahab, and says, there will be no rain here. What is he saying? He's saying, you think Baal is in control of rain. Now the Lord is going to remind you who really is in control and you will have no rain in the land with all the consequences that come from that. Elijah is confronting Israel's false belief that Baal, this local deity, was really in charge of the weather and in charge of their prosperity. Elijah says there's only one God and this God, the Lord, has promised to provide for his people. Elijah's whole ministry is a call to return to the one true and living God. He's saying, don't mix up your deities. Don't worship these other local deities that you think are responsible for these things in life. There's only one God, he says. So choose him, obey him, serve him, get rid of the other gods, and God will bless you as he has promised. He wants to take care of you. He wants to provide for you. Now, I think that's a relevant message for us today. Because we live in a syncretistic, idolatrous culture. Syncretism is mixing things. Now, Israelites didn't reject the Lord altogether. They still know who the Lord is, but they've changed their perception of God. They've changed their worship of God. They've just added other gods. They've added idols of the Lord, for example, And so they became this kind of like what everybody else was around them in Canaan. They became a culture that accepted there are many different gods out there. There are gods responsible for all sorts of things, so let's try to please all of them. Let's try to make sure we worship the right god for the right thing, and then we'll be fine. And Elijah comes and says, no, it's only one god. Not today. Many gods are vying for our attention. Many idols demand sacrifices. But in reality, there are not any more deities today than existed in Israel's time. There are no other gods but God Himself. There are no health God or money God or American God or marriage God. There is only the Lord. And we must deal with Him. And any crisis, whether it's a crisis in your life, a crisis in our community, a crisis in our nation, a crisis in the world, any crisis becomes an opportunity to re-examine our relationship with God, with the real God. A pandemic exposes our idolatrous worship of health. A recession exposes our idolatrous worship of money. A political conflict exposes our idolatrous worship of the government. Now, that's national stuff or global stuff, but it works on a personal level, too. The Lord is wise to use all kinds of circumstances to speak to us. But His Word often comes in crisis. It often comes alongside a drought. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The question is are we listening? Are we listening? Now, at this point in the story, Ahab is completely ignoring God's word. He does not believe Elijah. He thinks that Baal is probably going to come through. He is in charge of the rain. Here's this prophet says it's not going to happen. Let's see what happens. He's invested a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of political capital into the worship of Baal and Asherah. So time will tell. Now, that's how many of us go through crisis. We'll just see what happens. We'll see what happens. I just want to get through it. Instead of taking it as an opportunity to examine or to re-examine our relationship with God and deal with Him directly one day as we will see ahab will listen now it will take a lot for him to get there there'll be a lot of hardship there'll be a lot of suffering both on him and his land but he will listen one day are you listening today is god speaking to you today are you listening now this is what god is doing through elijah through his prophet But he's not only working through him for the benefit of Ahab and the kingdom, he's also doing something in Elijah and for Elijah. Right after this great announcement, the Lord takes Elijah away from Samaria. First, he miraculously provides for him by the brook Cherith, and then he miraculously provides for him through the widow of Zarephath. Both are deliberately chosen circumstances in which the Lord can work on his servant. He's taken them away. He's taken him away from this this ministry for a time. He's made his announcement. Now the Lord withdraws with him so he can work on Elijah. Now he just sent him to proclaim that the Lord is the only God of Israel. Elijah did that. Now the Lord is going to convince Elijah that he is the only Lord of Elijah. That's what the Lord is going to do. We proclaim all sorts of things that we don't really believe. We say that we believe all sorts of things that we sort of believe. Or if you ask us, we would say yes, but do we really believe it? Has it really made its way, its way deep into our hearts? And this is what the Lord is going to do with Elijah. And I think there are a ton of lessons for us here. So first, the Lord takes his prophet to the brook Cherith. Elijah is put in a situation where he cannot escape God. I don't know how much time you spend in solitude. I would venture to say for most of us, not enough or barely at all. Whenever you have a chance to be on your own, especially if it's, you know, just go for a hike, go somewhere where there are no distractions, you realize just how unusual it feels. I do. And maybe some of you, you know, practice it regularly and you're used to that kind of stuff. I am always surprised how difficult it is to be by myself, to be just with myself. And this is exactly where the Lord places Elijah. He can't escape himself, and thus he can't escape God. Now he's alone. There's no one else he can talk to except the Lord. He's away from civilization, Away from Samaria, there are no distractions of the city. His food is brought by the ravens twice a day. His water comes from a brook, not a river, not a well, a brook that can dry up any time. Every day, Elijah has to rely on the Lord and trust his promises, every day. I mean, imagine, most of us have no idea what it means to rely on the Lord for food or comfort or warmth. All Elijah has is the Lord. So the Lord takes him to this brook in order that the Lord can destroy any remnant of polytheism and idolatry in Elijah's own heart. God is going to use him. He's going to use him to turn, to turn the whole nation in a different direction. He's going to use him to, to bring kings to repentance. But before he does that, he has to bring Elijah to repentance. He has to work on Elijah's heart. He has to deal with Elijah's idolatry. The Lord is in charge of provision to Israel. Of course he is. He controls rain. He controls harvest. But he's also in charge of provision for Elijah. And he wants to show him that. While there is a drought in the land, he will take care of his servant. And the Lord will do it in a way that can only be explained by his power and presence. If the Lord takes you and places you by a brook and he sends ravens to you twice a day, bringing you meat and bread, right? You kind of have to say, there's no other explanation but the Lord, (laughs) right? I mean, if the Lord tells you, go there and I will feed you, I will provide everything you need and I will do that in this specific way by using unclean birds to bring you bread and meat twice a day, you're going to have to say, I I want to see that, right? And when you see it, you say, it has to be the Lord, the Lord who promised and now is doing what, what he promised. Now, what we see here is a common pattern in God's dealings with his people. The Lord frequently takes his people into the wilderness to work on their heart. This is not unusual for the Lord. We are always surprised when it happens, right? No surprise with the Lord. This is His normal pattern of work with His people. He did that with Israel. He did that with Moses, right? He did that with David. He did it with Paul in the New Testament, and He did that with Jesus. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted before His ministry officially begins. The Christian tradition has a rich history of retreating into desolate, barren places to meet with God and deal with the sin in our hearts. There were many people in 4th and 5th century and, and beyond that went into the desert, now known as the Desert Fathers and Mothers. They went to the desert to, to fight their own flesh and to know God. Because they, couldn't, they felt like they couldn't do it in the city. And so they went into the caves, and they prayed, and they read Scripture, and they fasted, and they served other people. It's a rich history of that. They were simply following what God typically does with with us. Season of Lent that just finished at Easter is meant to be that kind of season of intentionally withdrawing and dealing with God, of setting up restrictions in your life, of adding spiritual disciplines, of examining your heart so God can do a deeper work in you. We have to set those kinds of times aside so the Lord can work with us. Now, if we don't do it, he does it all by himself. I'm sure that many of you have experienced the Lord's provision by the brook Cherith. Now, it typically happens when something that feels essential is taken away. Now, it could be financial stability. It could be a relationship it could be a, a great crisis in community. It could be any number of things. It could be a medical emergency, some, something connected to your health, something that feels an essential part of your life and then it disappears or it's taken away or it's fallen apart. And it is then that many of us realize that the Lord is there and the Lord provides. I think of one such season in my life. Looking back, I'm not sure how I was able to get through it. I don't know. But each day, the Lord provided grace sufficient for that day. I had no ravens bringing me meat and bread, but the support I received through prayer was no less real. And I know there are many people in this congregation that would heartily agree with me and say, I have also had that experience. I was in a barren desolate land. Something was taken away. Something that I thought I couldn't live without and then I realized that the Lord was there. And the Lord worked on my heart. And the Lord showed himself to me in a way that I couldn't see him anywhere else under any other circumstances. And now looking back, I would not trade that for anything. At the time, of course, I didn't want to do it. But now, knowing what the Lord has done for me during that time, I see the great value. As I consider the weakness of the Christian witness in our culture today, I wonder if it is connected with our unwillingness to be with God at the brook Cherith. It may be that God is not doing as much through us because we are not willing to have Him do much in us. We prefer Samaria to Cherith. We'd rather not depend on God alone. Let me, let me be very specific. I didn't say we'd rather not depend on God. Many of us want to depend on God, but we'd rather not depend on God alone. See, many of us are fine saying, I will depend on God as well as I will depend on my job and on my family and on my friends and on my church and on my health. But what happens at the brook Cherith is the Lord showing you how you can depend on Him alone. No syncretism. Nothing else mixed in. It's just him. It's just him. And he's working on your heart. Our hearts can only be convinced of the exclusivity, supremacy, and all sufficiency of the Lord at the drying brook. There is no other place. You cannot learn that in Samaria. You just can't. The Lord has to take you to the brook And that's where you learn who he really is. And that's where your heart is changed. That's where the syncretism and idolatry that is deep in your heart, stuff that you don't even know about, gets exposed and it gets healed. So if you are in a desolate place right now, you're waiting for the ravens to to bring you bread and meat, friends, rejoice. Rejoice. I know it sounds so counterintuitive to say that you should rejoice in your lack in the desolate place that the Lord has placed you. But if you are there, rejoice because God is working in you. The reason you're there is because God wants to work on your heart. He wants to show you himself. He means to convince you in the deepest parts of your soul that he can be trusted, that he alone can be trusted. Cherith is not an easy place to be. But there is nowhere else where you can learn so much about God and where you can experience such fundamental internal change. Now, Elijah is going through this deep transformation. The Lord is teaching him. And then the brook dries up, right? So Elijah, who may have been an English major in college sees the ravens come in and says, Prophet said, I think of evil, Prophet still, if bird or devil. Whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed, thee here ashore. Desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted. On this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there meat and bread and water? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. No English majors in the room. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) I couldn't resist. You read a story about ravens, you have to read at least a few lines of Edgar Allan Poe. Let me regroup. (laughs) The brook dried up. The Lord had one other place that he wanted to take Elijah so he can work on his heart even more. Notice that in both cases, this is verses 2 and 8, It's the word of the Lord that directs Elijah. He's not just wandering around randomly looking for food and water. No, it's not what's happening. The Lord tells him to go to the brook. The Lord tells him to go to Zarephath. The Lord is directing him specifically to the places where he means to do the work on his heart. And Elijah is obediently following the Lord's direction. So he goes to Zarephath. Zarephath is, is in Sidon which is the center of Baal worship. Again, we have to pay attention to these things. The Lord shows up and says, there will be no rain because I control rain and not Baal. And then he sends Elijah to Zarephath in Sidon, which is the center of Baal worship. Now this is where Jezebel is from, right? Why is the Lord taking Elijah there? He's doing that to show that the Lord is God even in the heart Of Baal territory. Now, based on his experience at the brook Cherith, Elijah was convinced that the Lord can provide for him in Israel. He can. He knew that. He learned that. Now, the Lord will prove to him that he is not a local deity like Baal and that he rules everywhere, even in the places where Baal is worshiped by everybody. I think it's, it's this experience in Zarephath that would give Elijah courage to then confront the priests of Baal when he returns to Samaria because he's already seen God do something in Baal's territory that he is not expected to do. And so the Lord provides for Elijah there by miraculously supplying flour and oil through a broke widow. The Lord can provide through natural means. He can provide through supernatural means, but he provides. The widow is surprised and delighted. Now, when Elijah comes to her, she's getting ready to die, right? Remember, it's a drought. There's no food. She's got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, and she's gathering sticks to make a fire to make the final meal for her and her son, and then they expect that there will be no more food, and eventually they will starve. Elijah comes and he says to the widow, make me something first. (laughs) She says, we don't have very much. But for whatever reason, she listens. She obeys. She does what the Lord means for her to do. And Elijah makes a promise. Elijah says that you will not run out of flour or oil until the rains come. The strange man that shows up and promises by the God of Israel not by the local bail, but by the God of Israel that this widow and her son and her household will be provided for through these meager means, but it will be enough and it will not run out. And this is exactly what happened. What's the application for us here? Well, like Elijah, we too have to learn that God is where we don't expect him to be or where we think he shouldn't be at all. We are all polytheists to some degree. All of us are. We all worship multiple gods just by default. Now think about it this way. Is your perception of God the same at church on a Sunday morning, like right now? Are you thinking about God the same way here as you think about God at work, in your office, or at home? Does anything change when you leave this place where Obviously, we all say God rules. His word is proclaimed here and accepted by faith and obedience. We sing songs about him, right? His presence is near. And then you leave, and you go somewhere else. Maybe you go to your office where you don't really expect God to rule. There are other words that are much more important. There's other presences that seem much nearer, other wisdom that's at work. And God is at best distant, but really feels more like he's absent altogether. So here, we rely on God, we proclaim that we rely on him, we trust him, right? We become members of the church, we get baptized, we sing, we open the Bible in faith, and then you go somewhere else. And I bet your perspective on God changes. You don't really expect him to be there. Here we rely on Him, but there we rely on ourselves. But God is Lord over every part of your life. He is not a local deity. He doesn't live in this building. He doesn't just stay with just where His people are. He's everywhere. He's in full control. He rules every part, every sphere of your life. Even in Zarephath, the territory of Baal, the Lord is God. Now, do you believe that? You should say yes, because you're a church, right? (laughs) Yes, we believe that. But do you live that? When you go to work tomorrow morning, as most of us will, do you see God the same way? Would you sing the same songs with the same earnest singing that you, you do here on a Sunday morning and believe that? The Lord has to work on our polytheism. That's why he often shows up in places we don't expect him to be. And frankly, we don't think he should meddle in. And then he shows up and he provides, and sometimes provides in a miraculous way to show that he is also God there, not just in the religious spaces. And finally, what can God do for us through Christ? Now, the part of this story... It's sort of a triumphant story so far, right? And then there's a dip. The son of this widow dies. He gets sick, and he dies. Look at verse 18. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now She's blaming him. Because if he hadn't showed up, this God of Israel would not have been involved in her life. She would have continued in her worship of Baal and all kinds of other deities that she was committed to. But here comes this new God, this different God. And of course, he's going to have his own criteria. He's going to have his own, his own consequences for her sins. And so she's blaming Elijah. She says, you came and now you've angered this God against me. Now she's thinking exactly as a pagan would. Which makes me think, I don't know if she's a believer yet. I think this is more of a sort of a pragmatic faith. He comes a servant of God. He proclaims this God of Israel that makes a promise that comes true. Well, I'm certainly going to go along with that or alternative is death here. So she goes along, accepts God's promises, lives according to God's provision, but then her son dies. What do you do with that? Well, just like any other deity, this God must be angry with me. This God must be angry that I haven't done enough. I haven't offered the right sacrifices. I haven't obeyed him. This is a new God, so she doesn't know very much about him. And so, what are we supposed to do? It would have been better if Elijah hadn't come at all and brought this angry God with him. Now, I think it's good to be convinced that the Lord provides that he has power over rain, that he can bring a good harvest, that he can perform miracles. It's good to believe that and to experience that. But it is a different thing altogether to worship him alone and be convinced that he is the only God. There are many people who profess to be Christians and really are pagan. They've just found another God to help them. You have to transition from this sort of pagan use of God, trusting his promises, yes, accepting his provision, seeing an occasional miracle, to really seeing him as the only God and seeing how this God would deal with your sin, which is very different from any pagan deity. So how does this widow acquire this kind of faith, this exclusive faith, this real relationship with the living God. How does that happen? Well, look at verse 24. It doesn't happen based on her experience of the flour and the oil flowing and the sustenance of life. It happens when she sees a resurrection. Verse 24, the woman said to Elijah, this is after her son was raised, now I know, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The implication is she didn't know before. She went along with what Elijah was doing, but she didn't know that what Elijah was saying was truth and that this God, this God of Israel, is the Lord. Now, what changed here? Well, before, she knew that God could sustain life, but lots of things could sustain life. Now she knows that God can bring life out of death. Nobody else can do that. He's not just a God of rain and flour and oil. He is the God of life and death. And so she moved from this sort of pagan monotheism, even if she, she came to believe this is the only God, she moved from that to being a Christian, a follower of this real God, knowing Him and knowing that He is God alone. When Elijah heard that the child has died, he took him. This is probably a, a small child. He takes him, lifts him up, takes him to his room, puts him on his bed, and then does this weird thing, right? He stretches himself upon the child three times. And he prays to the Lord to restore the child's life. There is a transference of life that happens here. Elijah says, and he, he enacts it, he, he, he does it physically, he says, Just as you love me, just as you take care of me, just as I know that you are the real God who has the power of life and death, and this is what I've learned at Cherith. just as I know that, now make that true for this child. Give the same life that I know, give it to him. And so three times he stretches himself over the child, and the Lord listens to his prophet, and he restores this life God brings this dead boy back to life, and then the widow says, now I know, now I know that Elijah's word was truth, and Elijah's God becomes her God. The word of the Lord was authenticated by a resurrection from the dead. Does that not make you think about Jesus? It does me. I can't read these stories without thinking about Jesus because all these connections, all these parallels. Why do you believe in God? Why do you trust His provision? Why would you go with Him to the brook Cherith and allow Him to work on your heart? Why would you do any of this? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And when He rose from the dead, you know that He has power over life and death, that He is the only God, He is the only one you must deal with. And so you would go with him anywhere now. You trust his word because of the resurrection. Apostle Paul tells us that all God's promises, right? Are yes and amen and Jesus. Somehow Jesus makes all God's promises real, true, and reliable. Not other things. Now, there are plenty of people who have seen miracles who do not really believe in God. There are plenty of people who have seen God's provision that still do not commit themselves to God exclusively. They're happy to take what God gives them, just like many people who were following Jesus, and Jesus would feed them, and then when Jesus would say, I am the bread of life, they would scatter. Many people like that. Churches are full of people like that. But it's not until... You yourself die and rise again with Jesus. That you really know, just like that widow, that you really know that this is the true God. This is the living God. This is the God who has the power over life and death. Not just rain, but life and death. Now, I know that this is about Jesus because Jesus himself relates this story to himself. So just so you don't think I'm imagining things, okay? In Luke 4, Jesus cites the story, and he applies it to himself. Luke four twenty four. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, And when Jesus says that, if you read that passage, when Jesus says that he is rejected and they want to kill him, so what do we learn? Jesus was rejected and he was put to death so we can be brought back to life. It's Jesus who stretched himself upon that cross and prayed for us, and the Father listened. He listened to the word of his Son, and granted him the lives of all who trust him. The widow's son was spared because God's son was not. And unless we are changed by his death and resurrection, we cannot truly believe. We cannot truly worship the living God. We cannot truly know him. Unless we are born again. When scripture talks about the genuineness of someone's faith that describes it in terms of a new birth because it has to be something different. It has to be something new. It has to be something miraculous. You are born again by dying and rising with Christ. And when that happens, that's the real faith. And that's the kind of faith that can sustain you in a pluralistic, syncretistic world. And it will give you courage to do what you need to do to follow him faithfully.